Well, today we come back to Matthew, our study of this great gospel to the 18th chapter and to a section of of a, a discourse that Jesus is giving to us in Matthew 18, dealing with spiritual greatness. And at the core of this discussion of greatness is the issue of how we deal with sin, particularly how we deal with it in the lives of other people, whether we cause them to sin, whether we pursue them and how we pursue them when they fall into sin. And finally, as we come to the end of the chapter today, how we forgive them when they do sin. This is the the final, the longest section of the discourse and provides us one of the most memorable parables in all of Jesus' ministry, focusing on that essential element of spiritual greatness, which involves our readiness, our, our eagerness to forgive others, forgive each other. That's what this is about. Specifically, we might say, how you do that. That's what it's about. How do you find the ability to forgive people who have hurt you and who have disappointed you? And how do you find the strength in the most difficult circumstances to keep forgiving? How can you develop a forgiving heart that, that uh, deals uh, with grace toward people who mistreat you? How can you maintain that in your life? That's what this is about. And it should be noted that everything Jesus says to us about this subject here and everywhere else really is built off of a basic assumption of the reality of sin. It's all based on the idea that people sin, they sin against God and they sin against each other. And that sin is defined by a clear moral standard which arises from God's clearly revealed law. And so there is a right and there is a wrong. There is an idea of morality and immorality, of sin and of violation. And all of this provides the framework for forgiveness. It's unfortunate that we have to start there. But it's become obvious that it's necessary in the world that we live in. Because we're in a place where people don't believe in that anymore. They reject the idea of a standard of right and wrong. There's no such thing as that kind of sin or a way that sin can be defined. There's no idea of violation and iniquity. And with no world of sin and no standard of right and wrong, then there's no concept of forgiveness. It's important to understand. The concept of forgiving others has fallen out of favor. It's disappearing. People speak about forgiveness maybe only in terms of loans, financial obligations, but that's about it. They've tried to replace this whole concept with the idea of tolerance. One might say that that is the most celebrated, most supreme virtue in today's society, the idea that live and let live. Love is love. Everyone's life is their own life. They just kind of go along and get along, and and everyone is tolerating everybody. This tolerance, though is not the traditional tolerance that you might have been taught if you have been around for a while, the old sense of tolerance, which was really thought of as recognizing or respecting someone's right to hold opposing views. That's what tolerance uh, was, and, and in fact, in most dictionaries, still the way it's defined. Even if you disagree with someone, or even if they have some differing views, that you accept their or or you respect their right to hold a different view. You accept the existence, we might say, of other views. 
The new tolerance has the idea, though, of not just respecting someone's right to have an opposing view, but actually respecting their view. Actually accepting not just their right to have a view, but accepting their view. And it then becomes incredibly intolerable if you will not. In other words, the new tolerance is an incredibly intolerable mindset, an unforgiving mindset, a demanding mindset. There's been a shift from recognizing other people's right to have different beliefs and lifestyles to accepting different beliefs and lifestyles. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, to accept that a, a different or opposing position exists and deserves the right to exist is one thing. To accept the position itself means that there is no longer any opposition to it. The new tolerance suggests that actually accepting another's position means believing that position to be true or at least as true as your own. We move from allowing free expression of contrary opinions to accepting all opinions. Carson points out, he says, quote, In the past, tolerance in any culture was discussed relative to some broadly agreed upon or imposed value system, religious or otherwise. Once the value system was in place, the, uh, the, the, the questions inevitably arose about how far one might vary from it before facing legal or judicial or other coercive sanctions. But within limits, many cultures have concluded that some degree of dissent may actually be a good thing. Only the most despotic regimes, he says, allow almost no tolerance for those who disagree. But then he says, in much of Western society at the moment, there's very little cultural-wide consensus of right and wrong, good and evil, holiness and sin, while tolerance has been elevated to the highest spot in the moral echelon. The complicating irony is that those who hold most tenaciously to the supreme virtue of this new tolerance are by and large extremely intolerant of those who will not accept their definitions. Why do I read all those quotes? Because without an understanding of sin, you can't really understand forgiveness. You can't really understand the words of Christ here. If you try to construct a world where there is no right and wrong... If you try to walk according to the course of the world around you, if you are a child of the new tolerance, if you are already moving in the direction of accepting everyone's lifestyle and choices and opinions as equally legitimate, if you are erasing any boundaries between good and evil, there's nothing more to be condemned, nothing more to be judged, nothing that needs forgiveness, nothing that could demand any of that from you. And yet, ironically... I would say that we live in a very unforgiving society. The results are all around us. People are fractured. They are broken. They are angry. They are vicious. They're filled with anxiety and fear. They're splintering and divided and unreconciled and not accepting of each other at all. Virtually everyone from every angle of society recognizes that there are massive rifts and gulfs that are splitting people apart with no answer in sight. In the context of a society where sin is not recognized, 
then the answer of forgiveness has no function. There is, as I said, no standard to violate. There's no sin, and if there's no sin, there's never a need, never a framework for forgiveness. In spite of all that, the society that has constructed itself with no moral standards, people still have a basic sense of being violated. They still have a basic sense, if not on a a corporate uh, sort of uh, societal level, they have a basic sense on a personal level. They have a sense that people are treating them wrong, whether it is their co-workers or their bosses or their teachers or their friends or sometimes their family, not to mention all of the random people that they might interact with on a daily basis. There are all kinds of people who are upsetting them and they believe are treating them ill. And in those situations, their notions of tolerance don't seem to be the answer. They don't seem to be providing the solution. doesn't seem to give the framework for what they're supposed to do with a, peop- a, a, a whole world full of people who are inconsiderate and self-centered and rude and greedy and abusive and brutal and controlling and deceptive and divisive and manipulating or who commit any number of other offenses. People don't really know what to do with any of that stuff. But the answer for all of it, the answer that the world desperately needs, the answer that you desperately need is forgiveness. Simple enough. You must understand that all of these issues are only solved by one solution, forgiveness. But before you can understand any of that, you have to understand sin. All of that is beautifully pictured for us in this final section of Jesus' discourse and this story that is so critical, so beautiful in its depiction of this idea of forgiveness. Let me read it to us this morning, beginning in verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger... His master delivered him to the jailers 
until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, the clear context of this entire discussion is a question about sin. Someone who sins against you, a question of offense, someone who hurts you, and not just hurts you, but someone who hurts you repeatedly. How many times do you forgive them? But, as happens so many times, when Jesus hears the question, he, he takes it and he reframes it beyond just simply the numerical question of how many times. He reframes it really rather in another way. How can you forgive someone infinitely? How could you forgive someone and go on forgiving and go on forgiving? How could that happen? How could you develop that kind of a heart? How could you forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive anybody and everybody who comes and repeatedly sins against you? How could you develop in your own little space and part of the world, how could you develop a mentality, a a space, a reaction, a culture of forgiveness? How do you develop that kind of a forgiving heart? What do we need to do? And really, the, the really question behind all of this is, do we need to do this? Ought we to forgive? Is it necessary that we do it? How often do we need to do it, if we need to do it at all? If it is necessary, how can we possibly develop a heart to do this? Well, Jesus answers all of those questions here, giving us what I think are three motivations that are necessary to develop that kind of forgiving spirit. Uh, that kind of a forgiving heart. The first one is really discerned in verse 21 and 22 when he basically tells Peter, you've got to abolish all of your assumptions of personal virtue. You've got to get rid of all those basic assumptions that you have about yourself. This is, this is what he does when Peter asks him the question. It would appear that Peter is asking this question uh, expecting some sort of affirmative answer, maybe even a word of praise seven times. Wow, Peter, man, you, you would forgive somebody seven times? I mean, you are so patient. That, that is amazing. I mean, I mean it, let's be honest. Uh, they have really been challenging in your life seven times I mean they're never going to change you realize that right they're not really serious they're not really broken they don't really deserve another chance after everything that they've done that's probably the framework from which Peter's operating because that's what he had been taught the rabbis taught this they taught that you were to give forgive a person three times the fourth time They've reached the limit. And they base this off of their understanding of Scripture. Amos 2.6, the Lord says, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. And so they thought that this was some sort of formula that they could take and they could apply in their own lives. And so three times was sufficient. That's how many times you, that's how many chances that you gave to people. A first, a second, and a third. No more after that. After that, they're done. No more forgiveness. No more relationship. It's broken. They're cut off. You avoid them. You don't have anything to do with them. Unforgiveness. And so Peter's probably 
Sensing Jesus was uh, maybe more merciful than other men that he had known, and, and he could perhaps impress Jesus by taking the standard and doubling it. Not three times, but seven times. Surely Jesus would recognize how Peter is being so gracious. He's probably telling himself as he's coming, you know, I'm, I'm probably the most forgiving person I know. Seven times. But even while Peter believes he's doing more than anyone else, he's still operating on the same basic principles. The same basic principle that at some point I actually have the right to withhold forgiveness. That's his assumption. He's just moved the point, but he hasn't changed the assumption. At some point, I have to protect my own personal interest at some point. That's the assumption. He was operating from the assumption that the measure of forgiveness was determined by what the other person may or may not have done or deserve. Forgiving them three times was more than they deserve. Forgiving them seven times was way more than they deserve. And Peter assumed that this might demonstrate, might even confirm his own virtue by giving them more chances than others might give them. But at some point, he couldn't personally justify continuing to forgive them based on their behavior. They don't deserve any more than that. He's operating on the same assumption. But you see what Jesus does is he obliterates all that. He obliterates all those assumptions. He obliterates this idea of how many times you are to forgive. He obliterates Peter's idea of whether you can justify forgiving someone over and over again. It is obliterated, Peter's idea, that he might be the most forgiving person that he knew. Because Jesus says to you, I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some people translate that 70 times 7. The, 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 the real number is not uh, important. The precise calculation is not the point. Jesus is basically encouraging him not to keep a record. The point is that your forgiveness is limitless. It should never end. No matter how many times the person disappoints you, you forgive you reconcile, you restore, and you carry on the relationship. If they hurt you, if they fail you, if they disappoint you, if they fall under your standard or whatever it might be, you keep forgiving, you keep reconciling, you keep moving forward in love and affection toward them. There's no point where you make the judgment that they no longer deserve your forgiveness because they have done this over and over and over again because none of it is about what they deserve after all. There is no point that they cross where they either deserve or don't deserve any of it. That is the wrong assumption. And don't imagine that any number of acts of forgiveness, whether it's one or whether it's 500, don't imagine that any of it is a reflection of your personal virtue. You might be aiming to be a little bit more, a little bit less. You might be measuring yourself by what you perceive other people to be a, a, a more forgiving, a less forgiving man or woman than the person next to you because the cause of this forgiveness has to do with your personal virtue. But Jesus says it has nothing to do with that, nothing to do with that. It's based entirely on something else, which is his second 
uh, motive here, the second point of what generates this kind of a heart of forgiveness, because after he abolishes Peter's personal assumptions about his virtue, he then tells him this parable, teaching Peter that he has to measure the magnitude of divine forgiveness. That's where this begins. He has to measure the magnitude of this forgiveness. And he tells this parable explaining this standard of forgiveness in the kingdom of God. He says, it's like a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now that is an enormous sum of money. Talents was the largest denomination of money in the ancient world. And the word 10,000, the word myriad, is the largest numeral in the Greek language. I, I was curious about this, so I looked it up in English. What is the largest numeral in English? I don't know if you know, but it is a uh, Google Plexian. One Google Plexian is, is one followed by a hundred zeros. So, so, so perhaps that's the idea here is just the largest conceivable number. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just a, any number that's beyond what people could fathom. But if you did calculate this, A talent, a royal talent in those days was 70 pounds of gold. That's three times the size of our gold delivery bars that you see stacked up in the central banks around the world. In the ancient world, these golden talents would be shaped not in the form of bars, but in the form of lions, little lions. You say, well, how do you stack that up? Well, you don't. You never had that many that you had to stack them up. They were very, very expensive. In fact, if you calculated the amount of money that Jesus is talking about here in modern terms, it's over $22 billion that he's talking about. Or in the ancient terms, it was 15 times the entire annual tax revenue of Israel. Just 15 times the entire tax revenue of your nation. Some people suggest it's better to calculate this not based on financial terms because exchange rates always fluctuate and prices of metals are always moving, but we have record from ancient writers that a talent was essentially worth about 6,000 denarii, and denarii, one denarii was basically the wage of a daily worker, and so if we were to calculate from basic minimum wage of manual labor, if we were to just take that in terms of man hours, 10,000 talents would be 230,000 years, 230,000 years. So no matter how you look at it, this was an impossible sum of money, a ridiculously impossible sum of money. So so that's the point of the parable. It sets up this idea of the impossibility, this impossibly large debt. And we're not told how he incurred the debt, whether it was loans or fines or, or penalties or maybe a combination of all the rest of the things from the rest of the parable and, and from even his treatment of one of his fellow slaves, it would appear as if this is primarily a loan, like this man had gone to the king and borrowed this money promising to pay it back. And the king graciously lent him the money. And now here he is and he can't pay it. He's taken and he can't pay back. Really, it doesn't matter how he incurred it. The point is how impossible of a situation he's in. And of course, the picture is a picture of you and God. 
with all that God has given you, all that you owe Him in return, the complete impossibility of you repaying what you ought to repay, no matter how long you have. In spiritual terms, it would encompass the honor that you owe to God since He's the one who created you and gives you life and breath. The love that you owe to Him since God represents the highest model of goodness and beauty in the universe. The trust that you owe to Him since He's proven to be true in everything He's ever said. The obedience that you owe to Him since God is your judge and He's established a law by which you will be measured in the end. All those things and many more that you owe to God, this is really what's pictured here. You have accumulated a debt towards God that is far, far beyond your ability to pay. And even if you started today and you started to try and you started to do the things that you thought would be uh, worthy of God, even if you tried all of that, guess what? You would never do it because you would still fail. You would still incur debt. You would still sin. You would still fall short of everything that you are supposed to give. And so you stand hopelessly doomed, as doomed as this man. But this king and our God, by the way, he's willing to forgive. He's moved with pity and mercy and compassion for your situation. Realizing the plight and the position and the condemnation that you face, he's willing to wipe out all of those debts, insurmountable debts, debts that would bankrupt and ruin anyone else. He'll, he'll wipe them all out. And this is what you see. Since he could not pay, in verse 25, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment be made. I mean, even if he did that, Uh, That wouldn't even add up to one talent, much less 10,000 talents. The price of a slave was typically between one-tenth and one-twentieth or one-fifth of a talent. So even selling his entire family wouldn't even pay a fraction of this debt. A man begins to implore. He fell on his knees imploring the king, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. I mean, you can just hear the sort of the pathos of this person begging and begging. Just be gracious and kind. It wasn't possible. It wasn't possible for him to do this. What he was promising he couldn't do. People uh, don't maybe fully understand this. They make promises to God all the time. They tell Him that they're going to be good enough, they're going to be better, they're going to clean up their life. They make all these things, but they can't really make up. They can't really undo. They can't really pay back. But this guy is desperate. And he'll promise whatever he has to to get out of the situation. So the king knows. And in verse 28, out of pity... A master of the servant releases him and forgives him of his debt. That's the idea of forgiveness, by the way, this idea of releasing, releasing from an obligation. We use that in financial terms, as I said, all the time. Everyone's talking these days about forgiving debts, forgiving student loans, forgiving all kinds of, you know, PPP loans or whatever. People are talking about this 
releasing of these obligations, and they're talking in terms of financial obligations, but the idea of forgiveness is releasing people from obligations. You don't owe me anything. I'm not demanding anything of you anymore in regard to what you did. That's how the Bible speaks about forgiveness. It's the removal of obligations regarding an offense. God doesn't count the offense against you. As Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count iniquity. So here this king is putting this on display. He forgives completely everything. He doesn't demand a dime in return to cover any of these debt. He completely wipes it off the books and releases this man from any burdens. And the point of the parable is obvious. We are to take stock of how much we have been forgiven and how freely we have been forgiven it, how freely it has been offered to understand that you need God's forgiveness. And if you ask for his forgiveness, he will give it to you freely. And it doesn't really matter what the magnitude of your debt is. Doesn't matter how much you have offended him. Doesn't matter how much you have taken and refused to pay back. It doesn't matter how often you have taken it and ignored his, his generosity. He will forgive every time, every time. Seven times, 77 times, 70 times seven, he'll forgive every time. Even if it's the same sin, and that is the grief that sometimes we have, that the embarrassment that we have to face is that we find ourselves going back to God with the same list of sins, do we not? Over and over and over again. It's painful to my heart to go to the Lord today and tomorrow And to tell him, yes, Lord, once again, I did what I told you I was sorry for yesterday. And you have to ask for forgiveness again and again and again and again and again and again. And yeah, what do you find? His forgiveness is immense. He's eager to forgive every time. And so in answer to Peter's question about how many times you're supposed to forgive, the answer is as often as forgiveness is needed. We forgive in the same way that we needed forgiveness and we're to forgive to the same degree that we needed forgiveness. That's the answer. As often as you need to be forgiven is how often you forgive. And the thing that's going to facilitate that, as I said earlier, is that you come to grips with your own need. That, that you are humbled by how much you have offended. That you aren't walking in defiance and denial and pride in your own heart. You're no longer denying all the things that you once did or how deep was your debt or any of those things. That you understand how merciful God is and how He has shown you mercy. And of course, if you don't believe in any of that stuff, if you don't believe in sin and you don't believe in right and wrong and you don't believe in judgment, if you reject the idea of sin, you're going to reject the idea of forgiveness. If there's no standard that is to be violated, there's no need to be forgiven and you're never humbling yourself because you never really feel the need to be humbled. And the pride in your heart 
breeds a sense of entitlement and you become more and more demanding of other people and you become more and more disappointed in other people and you become more and more resentful of other people because you have not taken stock of how much forgiveness you need. And society and homes and marriages become fractured. The kind of mercy and grace that Jesus is explaining here can only arise out of a deep sense of humility in the person who has a deep sense of their need for forgiveness. That's the only place it comes from. And so this is always the starting place. This is always the first step in developing this gracious heart, or I should say one of the key steps. Uh, you, sort of un, you kind of uh, sort of completely eliminate this whole idea of your you know, personal virtue and how, how much more kind and tolerant and, and uh, gracious you are than everyone else. You just get rid of all that stuff and you realize that you're actually the one who needs grace. You start there and you dwell there and you meditate on that day after day. It fills your heart with gratitude. It fills your lips with prayers of thanksgiving. It fills your mouth with songs of praise. That's why we sing about the same things over and over and over again. Because this is where it all springs from. All of it springs from these reminders of God's amazing grace. How sweet the sound of God's grace and mercy toward us. Paul says in Colossians 3, bear with one another and forgive each other. And he says, whoever has a complaint against another... Just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should forgive. This is the end of complaining. This is the end of offenses. This is the end of fractured relationships. This is the end of aggressions and disappointments that fill your life every day. This is the end. Whenever you understand all of these things. But of course, Jesus doesn't end right there. He He actually adds a really critical point for us and a third motivation that is also necessary for us if we're going to maintain this kind of spirit of forgiveness, this kind of heart of mercy. He brings it out in the rest of the parable. He reminds us that we have to discern the dangers of an unforgiving heart. We have to discern the dangers of an unforgiving heart. He This is the point he's making where he says the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him and saying, pay what you owe. It becomes obvious this guy hasn't learned anything about the forgiveness that he's received. He, He owed this massive, incomprehensible debt. There are people who owed him debts. He had, he had been in a place of obligation and people were obligated to him but their debts were nothing compared to what he owed nothing compared to the massive massive weight that he was under and yet he can't forgive them he has no he has no forgiving heart i should say in this example a man owed him a a hundred denarii which obviously is much, much smaller than a hundred talents. One denarii, as I mentioned earlier, was basically the wage of a, of a common worker, about 
you know, 120, maybe 140 dollars in today's uh, wages, minimum wages. And so 100 denarii would obviously be around $12,000. Not an insignificant debt, but certainly manageable. And this second servant, we're told, and in the, in the words here, he falls down and pleads with him, have mercy with me and I will pay you. The exact same words of the first servant back in verse 26. The exact same words. But the first servant, the unforgiving servant, he has no pity. He doesn't have the pity of the king. He treats him roughly. He grabs him and chokes him. He puts all these demands on him. He speaks to him harshly. He even throws him into a prison so that he can be punished. His attitude reveals a lot. It reveals a lot about what he thought about his own debts. He presumed that somehow he deserved the release that he got. He presumed that somehow he didn't maybe really owe as much as he really owed. He presumed somehow that he had the capacity to pay it if he had been given opportunity. There was no real sense, no real shame for how much need he really had and how much grace he really received. And so it reveals a lot about what he thought of his own debt, but just as much it reveals a lot about what he thought of the king. He doesn't really have any gratitude, it seems, for the king's mercy and certainly no sense of admiration. There's no sense of wanting to be like this king, no sense of admiring this king, of esteeming this king. He just ignores all that. He sets all of it aside and he wants to demand full payment from this second servant in a way much different than what he had received. Well, in verse 31, word gets back to the king and he summons the first servant and reprimands him, you wicked servant. That's the only conclusion you can come to. This is wicked. And he states the case, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have shown mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That, that's wicked. It's wicked on so many levels. It's wicked because obviously the hypocrisy, the double standard. It's wicked because it shows no respect and honor to your God. And so whatever benefit he thought that he was going to receive from the king is reversed. The king delivers him into the prison, to the jailers. Literally, the word is tormentors. Not just jailers, tormentors. And they torment him until he pays all his debt, which, of course, he can't do. He never will be able to do. He continues to accumulate it. That's the problem with debtors' prisons, right? You're You're just accumulating more debt. And Jesus declares in verse 35, So also my Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from the heart. Or as James says in James 2.13, Judgment is without mercy to those who show no mercy. But why? Why is it that way? Is God's mercy conditional? I mean, don't we tell people that God's forgiveness is unconditional? Isn't this putting a condition on it? Well, it's true. God's mercy is free and unconditional. There are no conditions on it except for the fact 
that you have to recognize your need for it. You must confess your sins. This, this is the condition that Scripture puts on it. As John says in John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, he says in verse 10, if we say we, do not, if we, say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So at the core of this whole thing is an agreement, an agreement about your sin, an agreement about your debt, a recognition of the magnitude of your problem, an agreement about the consequences that you deserve. And if you don't agree with all that, then you're making God a liar. It's like God coming and saying, you owe all these things to me. And you're saying, no, I don't. I don't owe those things to you. And God says, well, I'm going to forgive you. It doesn't matter if you forgive me. I don't owe anything to you. But I'm going to offer to be merciful. I don't care about your mercy. I don't need it. That's what this man was thinking. That's the way he was acting. And of course, all of it only compounded his guilt. If you confess and agree with God about all the things that he says, if you confess your sins... If you confess that it is beyond any possibility of you ever repaying, He forgives. And then it is inconceivable, it is inconceivable that you would not be humbled by that. To not be humbled by it is to really reveal where your heart really is and what you thought about the debt to begin with. And so when this servant fails to show mercy, he reveals what he really thought about his own need for mercy. He wasn't convinced that he was that bad off, but he was. And tragically, he learns the truth when he's locked away forever with the tormentors. What about you? What about you? Have you come to see your debts? Do you understand them? Do you understand the desperate situation that you're in? Hopefully you do. And hopefully you know that our God is merciful and that if you will call on His name, if you will confess your desperate need, He is eager and He's ready to wipe away all of your sin. Father, we're mindful as we read through this of of the day that we cried out to you and the weight that we felt and the darkness that it consumed us. We are reminded of how freely you forgave us. And I pray today that we wouldn't forget, that we would never forget. How could we? When you were so gracious and kind to us and indeed you continue to be when we come day after day asking for your forgiveness, how could we? be anything but grateful. And so, Lord, we are determined to show that same mercy. We're determined to release others from the bondage of their guilt. We're determined to free them from any obligation that they may have toward us in regards to the things they may have done to restore and to reconcile and to love and to engage them 
in the freedom and power of forgiveness. Lord, we do that not because it arises from us. It isn't our personal virtue. It is you. It is you who taught us and continues to teach us by your grace and mercy toward us. We pray that that would always, always be at the core of our heart. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.